passage. We have made it to chapter 6 in the, the book of Romans, and we're going to continue looking at the application of this passage this morning. And it's, it's actually related to the reign of grace that we, we are now under a, a, as believers and, and this glorious union that we have with, with Jesus Christ, which unites us with His death and resurrection. And this morning, we're going to go one step further in application by, by considering a parallel passage in the book of Colossians, which is why your Bibles are open to Colossians 3. We looked at detail uh, in, in Romans 6, 1 through 10, about this union, this theological union that, that a believer has with, with Jesus Christ, and then the glorious benefits that that, that, that provides. And Paul really belabors this this, this concept, it, it's fundamental to understanding the Christian life. If you're going to live the Christian life, you need to understand this, this union, how you have been baptized, to use Paul's words, into the, the, the death and resurrection of, of Christ. But then immediately after, after stating that, that the, the facts about that, he, he applies the truth with these four combat-ready verses in verses 11 through 14. This is... All history, where we've been in the book of in the book of Romans, and they call us to action. It's what we just finished. It actually calls us to war. He gave us four imperative commands to walk in this new reality that we now possess as a as a believer. He, he says there's a change that has taken place. If you're a Christian, a change in how you relate to sin, a change in how you relate to God, and all of that is because of our union with with Christ. And, Paul is very clear in Romans 6 what, what he does not mean. He does not mean that we have ceased war with sin, or he would not be commanding us to fight. He wouldn't be giving us the imperatives in verses 11 through 14. If because you became a Christian, then it's, it's now coast right, in, right into heaven. So it's clear that the war with sin hasn't ended. It's also clear that Paul doesn't mean that we, we can reach some state of sinless perfection on, while we're here on the earth, like, like uh, Charles Wesley taught, or John Wesley, I should say, or, or the Methodist teach, or, or he wouldn't have commanded this in, in present imperatives, meaning that's something that we continually do our entire Christian, Christian life. The passage establishes the limits and brings clarity of our theological union with, with, with Christ. He, he tells us at the putting on of Christ that this promises something in the present and something in the future because of a past event. And that past event is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the present, we have the power of, of the resurrection operating in our lives. And we use that power to do battle with, with sin or what John Owen called mortification. But he also says that it promises something in the future. It hasn't happened yet. It, it, it's part of the motivation. It's, it's the promise that we all look forward to, full glorification. When our fleshly bodies, our mortal bodies, as Paul used the term in Romans 6, will be, will be done away with and we will, we will take on immortality. He promises something that has yet to, to take place. One day this mortal body will be done away with and all the remnant of sin will, will be gone. And and all of these present and future promises are because of this past theological fact of our union with Christ when we, where we died to sin and were raised to new life. I mean, you could summarize it in this way. There was what happened in the past and what's promised in the future. And, and in between those, those two events, we're given power to fight. We're, we're not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies any longer. We're no longer slaves to sin, but now we have the power to, to fight it. So he gave four imperative commands. Uh, one command related to our minds to consider the truth, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, and two prohibitions about what we must not do concerning enduring sin. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't offer your members to sin. And then one command related to living a new life as, as God's child. You, you offer yourselves to God and your, your members to, to God. You, we are to become what we are, as one theologian put it. This is what we are, and we're to become that, and he's telling us how, how to do that. So now that we've gotten the theology from, from Romans 6, 
2 through 10, and we've got our marching orders in these commands, we want some additional detail about what that looks like in, in daily life. You may be here last week or the week before thinking through these commands. Yeah, I want to do that. I, I want to offer myself to God. And, and, and no, I don't want to offer myself to sin. So, so, so are there any more specifics, any more particulars to, that, that will give me some, some marching orders, if you will? I'm, I'm ready for the battle. Where do I put my feet? Well, this parallel passage from the book of Colossians actually gives us the detail on how to do that. This passage was also written by the Apostle Paul, and as you'll see this morning, it's the exact same concept, the same idea of being in union with Christ and then specific commands that were given to, to do battle, particularly in the area of putting off and putting on. We said last week, one of the things that will help you obey the commands of Romans 6 is this principle of biblical replacement which is what you find right here in Colossians 3. And biblical replacement simply means the process of moving old ways of living and thinking and exchanging them with, with Christ-like ones. As Christians, we are to put off the, the deeds and the desires of the old man, which are the B.C. or before Christ behaviors and patterns and who we were in Adam before we, we, we came to Christ and... We're only to put those off, but we're to put on the attitudes and the actions of, of the new man, the person we are now that we're in Jesus Christ. And I, as much as I wish it were true, and I understand God is wiser than, than I am, and as much as I wish it wasn't true, that doesn't mean that process won't happen without some spiritual sweat. I wish that it was coasting right on to heaven. Uh, sometimes the battle is hot and it is, it's hard. But the process that we undertake is given to us. It's, God's method is provided here in Colossians 3. And verses 3 through 11 shows several ex, uh, examples of vices that we're to remove. And then a contrasting list of virtues in verses 12 through 14 that we must add in its place. Nathan read that for us this morning. In fact, this command that you find in Colossians 3, or to become what you are from Romans 6, is, is not just here, it's all over the Bible. This is what Philippians 2 means when Paul says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for it, but work it out. Now that you have it, work it out. God has given to you salvation. How do you work it out? What does it look like to work it out? Well, you're putting off the deeds of the old man and you're putting on the new man who is... Jesus Christ, and you're to do that with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure, which is what we find here in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. It actually shows us what this working out looks like. And we do all of that because we have the power of heaven, the, the power of the new age operating in us as believers right now. And, and that's the vantage point that Colossians a, a, a appeals from. Look, if you would, at Colossians 3 verse 1. Look at how Paul starts this, this section of, of putting off and putting on. He says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. That sounds a lot like Romans 6, doesn't it? It, it should. It's a, it's a parallel passage. I mean, if you have been raised up with Christ, meaning since you have, since you've been raised up with Christ, where Christ is seated at the right hand of, of God, which is where you're located spiritually this morning because you're in union with, with Him, that's the theology part. Now here's the command. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Why? Because of the death and the resurrection of Christ and your union with Him. Look at verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in, in God. You're still alive this morning physically, but, but you have died in this union with Christ spiritually. And so Paul goes right to the union of 
of a Christian with, with Christ here as well. You have died because Christ has died and your life is hidden with Him. And then he looks to the resurrection. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him. Where? In glory. So here's the resurrection. And then verse 5 begins the application, which is our focus this morning. Look at verse 5. Therefore, based on all of this theology, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body dead. Literally, put the members to death. And with that, Paul provides a list of vices that we're to put off in verses 5 through 11. And then the list that we're to replace those with in verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on heart of compassion. So put off and, and put on. All because we have the, the power of heaven in us, the promise of heaven before us. That's where we're to set our minds, just like Romans 6, to reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Your, your, your mind, set your minds on the, on the things above. Set your mind on, on heaven. I mean, heaven is a wonderful thought, isn't it? I mean, even more so whenever you, you actually understand the daily battle with, with, with sin. It's where I wanted to go last week when I was in the midst of the battle. I mean, heaven is a perfect place with perfect people in perfect relationship with God with no sin and no devil and no death. That is a great place. And we know about it because God's revealed it to us. But, but frankly, when you go to the Bible, the information, like the details about heaven are, are, are really limited in some ways. And I think it's because of our inability to understand it. That's left people to attempt to find ways to try to depict heaven. Like, like if you look at the great historical paintings of the past, uh, you would think heaven is a is a place full of pudgy little people with, you know, with white robes and wings. But that's not what heaven's like. Or modern attempts where they, they pick God of, you know, uh, depict God as speaking with a, with a booming voice. I am the Lord. Like he has a really bad sound system and he holds the mic too close to his mouth as if that's how God speaks. I mean, how do we know how God speaks? We don't. These are pitiful representations of what heaven will actually be like, of, of course. In fact, we're told that it's so wonderful, it's beyond our, our comprehension. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. Heaven for a believer is not an end. It's, a, it's simply a separation from the present physical world and the entrance into the heavenly realm and the immortal presence of, of God. I mean, heaven for a Christian is the climax of, of all that we look forward to. So Paul says, set your mind there. It's the laying off of mortality and, and putting on the eternal garment of heaven. It, it's the farewell to this world and all of its piddly pleasures and greetings to unspeakable happiness that, that never fades or ends. It's the departure from all sin and its physical consequences and the arrival of, of sinless perfection. It, it's the severance from Satan and his deluding torments and the initiation of face-to-face -face fellowship with the Lord. It's the goodbye to pain and its suffering and, and greetings to a new body and eternal wholeness. It's the the parting of the flesh and its temptation and an entry of, of not ever knowing again what, what it feels like to be, to be tempted. I mean, heaven for a believer is, is entrance into the very presence of God. A never-ending day that is filled with such joy and pleasure that no earthly experience could even begin to describe it. I mean, heaven with the Lord will be such a place that the greatest high, the pinnacle of enjoyment that you could ever experience here on earth would, would be equated with excruciating pain if there was some way to be able to, to compare them. It's entrance into a place that you and I have, have never even comprehended, a place where there is no sin or its effects. and There will never even be a hint of anything impure there, within or without. Whatever temptation that you struggle with now, whatever 
weights and sins with dust so easily beset you, um, whatever you struggle with, you won't even think about those things in heaven. As hot as that battle is here, it'll be gone there. There'll be total and final victory. I mean, anybody want to go right now? I want to go right now. I mean, heaven is such a wonder-filled place that when you think of death in those terms, you understand why the Apostle Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as amazing as that, that place is, Paul starts here because of what he's about ready to say in verses 5 through, through 7. I mean, the book of Colossians begins here, and I belabored that because what we're about to plunge into is hard work, spiritual work. We're to set our minds on that place and then live here like it's a coming reality, and it is. And while we're living here, we're subject to the pull of this world and the influence of the unredeemed flesh. And, and a Christian feels that pull, and so a Christian longs to be out of that, but knows that this is what God has given us to do here before we, we, we get there. And so the Lord reminds us we're to live as citizens of heaven, not, not earthlings. He tells us as believers we're to rid ourselves of of those hellish barnacles which remain of the former life. And as long as we, we live here, although longing for heaven, we're at war against sin's attempt to overtake our earthly members. And God says, take no mercy on sin. One commentator said, because sin will take no mercy on you. You're to put to death those activities and attitudes that, that now flow from the the unredeemed flesh, which is exactly what Colossians 3, 5 through 7 teaches us. I mean, Paul exhorts believers on the, the basis of their position in Christ and the hope of heaven in verses 1 through 4. He now instructs us about our earthly activities in these three commands. Look at, we'll cover all three of them. Two uh, this morning, I'm sorry, one this morning, two next time. Look at verse 5. Here's the first command. First command. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead or put to death. There's the first command in verse 5. Second one is in verse 8. But now you also put them all aside. There's the command. Take them off like a garment, like an old, uh, an old coat that's dirty. And then the, 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 the third command in verse 9, do not lie to one another. In verses 8 and 9, the last two kind of go together in, in one area of battle. In these verses, Paul gives a death sentence to the things that flow from our earthly nature. And that might not be a surprise to you. What may be a surprise to you is Paul says, you're the executioner. I'm the executioner. It's not something God does for us. It's something that God calls us to do. And so we'll call it three articles to the death sentence of our, of our earthly nature. We're to put off sins of desire. We're to put off sins of disunity. And then he gives us the decisive reason that you must do this. The first list has to do with sins that affect our devotion to, to, to God. That's what we'll look at this morning. The second list with sins that affect relationships to others. And when you put them together, they, they, they cover sins of the body and sins of the tongue. And there are no two that are harder, no two harder areas of sin to overcome, which is why I think Paul puts them right in front of us here after this call to set our minds on, on heaven. Sins of the body and sins of the tongue. Let's look at the first one here. He says, put off sins of, of desire. The, you're commanded to put to death sexual sin. If you would at verse 5. It says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So it begins with a command here. And the language is actually much stronger than the New American Standard provides. This is one place that I do not like the translation of the New American Standard. It's literally put to death the members uh, which are upon the earth. So the ESV says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Better than that is the New King James. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. And frankly, even better than that is the King James. 
Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. And when you hear the word mortify, as one said, you know something's getting killed. Paul will tell us what in a minute. He then gives us the reasons that, that, that we're, that we're to, to take up this command. Look, if you would, at verse 6. For it is because of these things, what things? The things that he puts in this list. Because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So there's motivation one. They attract the wrath of God. Motivation two is, is number seven. And in them... You also once walked when you were living in them, meaning you're not living in those anymore. When you hear the word mortify, it means something has to be put to death, and the question then you have to answer is, is what? I mean, okay, God's put a sword in my hand. What, what am I supposed to, to wield it on? And, and Paul says here, it's your, your earthly members, and then he lists specific sins. Verse 5, Therefore, put to death the members of your earthly body. And then he lists immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. But he says you're to put these members to death. Which are the parts of our mortal body that, that give place for sin to light? You, you get this idea that, that sin is there, it's in us, it's around us, and it's, it's flying around, flitting around like a hummingbird looking for a place to light, except it's not a cute little hummingbird, it's a buzzard. It's the earthly parts of you that are not yet redeemed, that are still subject to, to temptation. I mean, these members, like we looked at Romans 6, they're, they're your mind and your emotions and your biology and your eyes and your hands and your feelings. And Paul says, put those things to death. And you say, how do I do that? I mean, how do I kill my mind? How do I kill my eyes? Well, that's, that's why Paul's list is helpful. He answers that. You're to put to death immorality and impurity and, and the rest of the list. It tells us exactly what, what, what he means. This is, doesn't mean cut off your members literally, but the things that they can do. So the phrase, your members which are upon the earth, this simply means the deeds and the activities of these members. It's a figure of speech. It's a, called a, a metonymy. One commentator said, if Paul didn't provide the list, there would be a bunch of maimed Christians running around in the Bible, like, like tongueless Peter. I mean, Peter's not preaching Pentecost, if that's what Paul meant here. Or blind Samson. Well, I guess Samson already was blind, but it wasn't because he blinded himself. One-legged John Mark, um, you're to do battle against temptation, is what, what Paul's here. Where it meets you on the battlefield is in those members of your mortal body. I mean, that's, that's the point where sin tries to re-enslave you and get back on the throne, to, to use language of Romans 6. You, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Your spirit is now alive, and yet you are still in a fallen world with, with an unredeemed, a mortal body, and the place where this battle takes place between those two is, is in these members. It's where the camel puts his nose under the tent and where the war must be fought. I mean, the victory's already been declared. You, you, you've died to sin's power, but, but you still must fight. I mean, sin is per personified here, the body is personified, but, but really the battle is against the expressions of sin. I think a good way to summarize this is it's a battle against temptation. Sin is dethroned, but there's still a, still a war. The earthly nature is no longer in control of us, but it can still make some very vile offspring if, if it's allowed to breed. And so Paul is saying, take every opportunity to kill those spider eggs before they hatch, or they're going to be everywhere. I mean, the other imperatives that, that he gives in, in the first part of chapter, uh, first part of, the, of this chapter, exhorts to continue doing something. Keep seeking, keep setting your mind. And this one just speaks of a simple action, put it to death. Paul says, you died, and here he says, your members also need to die. And that word mortify is a really strong word. It means to, means to slay utterly. I mean, God's not playing around here, and we shouldn't either. I mean, the point is they're to be put to death, they're to be ended, they're to be separated from you. That should be your goal. 
It won't happen completely till you get to heaven, but that's what you want. That's what you long for. And the meaning of this word and the force of the tense means a deliberate and painful act of personal determination. You have that image of heaven in your mind that we started with? Take your mind back there before you brace yourself for this, for this statement. All right? Heaven's in your mind. Listen to Alexander McLaren describe what, what this word means. He said, it's like a man while working at a machine who gets his fingers drawn between the rollers or caught in the belting. Another minute, he'll be flattened into a shapeless, bloody mass. So he catches up an axe lying by and with his own arm hacks off his hand at the wrist. It's not easy nor pleasant, but it's the only alternative to a horrible death. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? That's what we're to be doing with these activities and attitudes of the, of the unsaved life. It, you're to kill them dead. You're to take up the axe against them. It, it's just not something that you, you, you treat with cavalier uh, attitude. Just what is this offspring that, that, we're to, that we're to take up war against, that we're to take the sword and, and apply it to? Well, well, we'll look at it here in verse 5. Therefore put to death the, the members of the deeds of your earthly body, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. The list contains both deeds and desires. Um, the first... Two are actions, the things that we do primarily. And the last two are, or last three, I should say, are inner dispositions. There are five here. And the first one on the list is, is a very general word. It, it's translated immorality. It can also be translated fornication. It's a, it's a, it's a word that's, that's, that's uh, very broad and very wide on purpose. Uh, the Greek word is pornea which is where we get the word for pornography. It, pornea and graphe, which means writing. I mean, pornography is, this, is sin in picture form. And so Paul starts with a general word for all kinds of sexual sin. And, and what it entails has already been defined for us in the Old Testament. I mean, we don't look to Roman culture or our culture to today to define what is moral or what is immoral. You do that, it's going to be moving all, all over the place. We, Christians don't look to the culture for the definition of morality. Christians look to, the, to, the, look to God for the, for the definition. He's fixed the, the definition in, 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 the, in the Word. And we need to look at how God defines it for His covenant people. And the book of Leviticus actually contains the definition of this word, morality or, or pornea. Leviticus 18 is actually God's gift to, to His people, which clarified how they're to live different from the pagans around them. They're now in covenant with God, and so they, they're to be different from the Egyptians, and different from the Canaanites, and different from other people. And contrary to what you may hear today, the specifics of the law, um, like in the book of Leviticus, where God lays out all of, these, all of this stuff in such detail, that's not antiquated religion. It was to mark out God's people versus those who are not God's people. I mean, it says, you are my people, and they are not. This is how my people live. This is how they find blessing. Scott McKnight summarized the boundaries of the definition of this word well in Leviticus 18. Now, this is a little print, but I'll read it. Leviticus 18 defines this word and, and prohibits relations with close relatives and parents and spouses of parents and siblings and spouses of one's children or their children, siblings, aunts and uncles and spouses, daughters-in-law and son-in-laws. Don't ever tell me the Bible's not specific, right? A woman and her daughter and her children, women during menstruation, a neighbor's wife, those of the same sex and bestiality. And you listen to a list like that, and you, you, you should think two things. Probably think the first one right out of the gate. Some of that is bizarre and gross, and it is. But that list was the current expressions in the pagan culture around Israel. This is what they were doing. You're not my people. You are my people, so don't do these things. And this is what individuals were doing who are not God's people, which is the point. 
The second thing that you should be thinking is there's, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? I mean, the Bible is just the opposite of what the scoffers say. It's not an outdated book that has no application today. I mean, here it is addressing the very sins of the culture 3,500 years ago. And here it is addressing the same sins of our culture today. Because human beings haven't changed. What's even more encouraging is God's truth and His transforming grace hasn't changed either. It's still the solution. It's, It's the only solution. And so when Paul brings up this first word in the list, it's like a bus filled with with a bunch of people in the seats. And there are some really ugly people in those seats. He doesn't list all the perversions in detail because he doesn't have to. This word drags with it the definition already given in the Old Testament. Not the culture, but the Bible. So Scott McKnight said that's important because you'll hear people today say that what the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't condemn this and doesn't condemn that, or Jesus never spoke about this specific sin or that one, implying therefore it must be okay. But but this word covers all sexual irregularities. And the Lord says believers are in covenant with Him. And because of that, we're not to join our bodies, we're to in union with the Lord in in any way that is sinful. I mean, our bodies are a, are a temple of the Lord. It's the example that, that he describes. You know this passage well. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of the body, but the immoral man, there's our word, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that, the, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Flee immorality. Put off. Put on. Glorify God in your body. Don't use your body this way. Use your body this way. And how powerful a truth. (laughs) That the very presence of God Almighty is in His redeemed, is in us. And Paul's point here is, therefore, how horrific a sin to take the vessel of God and and join it with immorality of any kind. So a general word to begin with. He gives another word here. Look at, if you would, at at verse 5. He says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. And the second word is, is impurity or uncleanness. Word is, is used as an action and also an adjective. Something could be unclean, an unclean vessel, an unclean person. But here it's describing the inner disposition of, of, of the old life. It means something unclean or, or, or filthy, and it goes beyond the act. It, it goes to thoughts and intentions of the heart, and he says that those can be unclean. They, they defile a person. Again, just the exact opposite of what you find in culture. You, what you feel or what, what, what you desire, that, that's who you are, and that's something to be expressed. It's just the opposite. The Bible says sin begins in the mind. Evil behavior begins with evil thoughts. That's why marketers know it's best to leave things to the imagination because the mind of man can defies corrupt content on its own. It's, that's why the first word in this list is, is general, because there's no depth to where the human heart can, can go. I mean, there's actually such perversion that, that, that can take place in the mind that, that Paul says you're not to even speak about certain things that, that, that people who are not gods actually do, and, and what you may have done, done before. Look at Ephesians 5. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. They're not to be paraded. I mean, some things you don't even talk about because they're, they're, they're defiling even, even to, to set your mind on. And he says, but all things become visible when they're exposed to the light. One day, all things will be exposed by the, by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead, and Christ will, will shine on you. These things are not cute or something to trifle with. I mean, 
Men dressed up like women dancing for children is not cute or, or, or fun. There's nothing gay or happy about them. They're this word. It's unclean. It's filthy. What's behind that makeup is a world of foulness. And you can't even speak of what's going on in their minds or your mind before Christ. It's corrupt and vile. The Lord says believers as believers, we're not different. We're to think on these things, Philippians 4. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right. Think on what's pure, think on what's lovely. Whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's the standard of the culture. Because the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. I mean, you really can't think of filling your mind with with bad language and perverse images that, that somehow that's not going to affect you, right? That it won't produce something bad in your life. I mean, the Bible says here it, it will produce uncleanness. And so God says, kill those thoughts. Not, not cuddle or cultivate them. Look at the third word. The third and the fourth one go together. It, it, it's the word inordinate affection or passion and then, and then evil desire. Therefore, consider the members, verse 5, of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, it's the uncleanness, and passion and evil desire. They, 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 they go together. It's like heads and tails of a coin. Passion refers to uh, physical affection that's set loose in the, in the body, here, here sinfully. It's a word that's used in Romans 1 for degrading passions, these, these passions that degrade. There are certain passions that, that lead to, to things that are degrading. It's, it's the driver force that will not rest until it, it's satisfied. It's a passion that's, that's never satisfied, which is the, so why the intensity of sin has to increase. You have to look at something worse, something more. You have to do something more. It's, it's never satisfied. J.D. Rockefeller, I think, said when somebody asked him how much, how much money is enough, and he said more, just more, more sin, more. Sin is a wicked master. It, it, it promises you satisfaction and delivers you slavery. The fourth word is inordinate desire. It's the other side of this passion word where passion refers to the, the physical side, inordinate desire is an evil desire, literally, evil desire. And it refers to the mental longing that goes along with this passion, this, this drive. It's the God doesn't just forbid what we do. God forbids certain desires. He calls them evil or inordinate, meaning it's a desire that exceeds divinely established limits or or it's not in order, in order with God's pattern. It's inordinate. It's a desire that is either beyond the boundary that God's allowed, like gluttony is to a good desire. I mean, desire itself is not bad. God gives us all kinds of desires. Just, he gives us the desire to, to eat, and, and he's give, He gives us good things to enjoy. I mean, the evidence of that is you have taste buds. I mean, the Lord didn't have to do that, but the Lord wants you to enjoy the gifts that He gives and the food, so He gives you the desire for it and the ability to, to enjoy it. Gluttony, then, is, a, is an evil desire. It's an inordinate desire. It goes beyond the natural desire, the, 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 the desire that, that is, that, that's God-given. Or it's a desire for something that God forbids, period. Inordinate desire can be something that God just puts out of bounds, like, like the, the desire for your neighbor's wife. Or the desire for same sex. I mean, God gave you a natural desire, a good desire for intimacy with, with your spouse. That's, that's a God-given desire. The marriage bed is undefiled. It's a wonderful thing. It's a gift from, from God. And, and yet, you go outside of that boundary, that, that desire. You take that boundary to your neighbor's wife, and then it's, it, it's, it's inordinate. It, it's evil at that point. Which is what Jesus was, was aiming at whenever he got to... Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, You have heard it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. He says that you're not an adulterer by God's standard whenever you commit the act, but at the moment you desire in your heart someone or something other than, than your wife or, or your husband. It's, it's an evil desire because God, God forbids it. 
were to put it in current culture, you're, you're not guilty of breaking God's law of, of immorality just by acting, but by even desiring. You're guilty before God when you desire someone of the same sex. It's, a, it's an inordinate desire. So desire can be evil if it surpasses God's good limit or, or if they're for the wrong thing. And so Paul says these sinful thoughts or imaginations are to be executed as, as quickly as they arrive in a believer's heart. Certainly not entertained. You say, can those kinds of things be in there for a believer? Well, of course they can. You wouldn't have this command to put them to death. I mean, you are, those desires are a product of, of the fall. You live in a fallen world and you have a depraved nature and those desires come out in different ways. And you might not have this desire, you might have that, that desire to go beyond whatever boundary it is. It doesn't make you weird, that makes you sinful, that makes you fallen, but, but the battle is the same. However, your fallen nature is manifesting and you have to kill it at the desire level. If you find yourself falling to these patterns, then you take decisive action, war against it, or, or soon your thoughts could become, could become actions. Look at this final one here on the list. Paul finally says you're to put to death greed or covetousness, which also amounts to idolatry, which is idolatry. He sets this last word in the list apart from all the others, um, by giving this little commentary on the end. Greed, which amounts to idolatry, or w- which is idolatry. It's a word that, that means more. This is the word that means more, to have more. Greed means to have more. That's where all these other sins spring from. It means to have an insatiable desire to, to have more, to have what is forbidden and it's not just wanting your neighbor's SUV or your girlfriend's new outfit. It, it, all sin has its root in this. And, 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 and when you want something other than God and you're willing to sin to get it, that's when it becomes idolatry. This, this desire sits upon the throne and then rules over you rather than God sitting there. So he says fundamentally it's idolatry because it displaces God. And the fact that the... This, this ends a list of, of sexual sins that should be closely tied to this category. It's greed or covetousness where a person obeys their inner desire rather than, rather than the Lord. And, and Jesus said, whoever you obey, you're, that's your master. Greedy or covetous people worship themselves. And he says, don't do that. You're not, you're not that way anymore. Will you be greedy? Will you be covetous? Yes, or this command wouldn't be given here, but, but you can't let it remain. You must kill it at, at its root because these things attract God, God's wrath. And they're the things that you used to do, that I used to do before, before I, I, met, I met Christ. And Christ can deliver you from, from all of these things, which is the whole point of this list. It tells you that the truth and and tells you how Jesus helps you overcome these things, which is grace. It's gracious to do that. Look, if you would, at verse 6. He, he tells us the motivation to go about this battle that's hard, so hard that he has to hold heaven up in front of you before he gives it to you. Verse 6, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. It will come for the sons of disobedience. You're not the sons of disobedience. You're, you're the sons of light. You, you're in God because of grace. Not because you figured it out, but because He saved you. Which is what He'll say in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen by God, you, you, you're not smarter than anybody else. It was the, the sovereign grace of the Lord that brought you to this. And because of that, that motivates you. But, but here He says... You've got to kill them because these things are what Jesus died for. It's God poured out His wrath on His Son, and, it, and this is what other people will face wrath for. You kill them because they're a steeple in the midst of the lightning storm of the wrath of God. I mean, they attract the wrath of God like a magnet that does iron. You don't. 
you're not sons of disobedience, but, but in unbelievers, they do these things, and it, it stores up wrath. So he starts this chapter with heaven, and, that, and now he turns toward, toward wrath. I mean, wrath of, the wrath of God is one of the many attributes that the Lord has, like his omniscience and his faithfulness and his love and, and grace. And, and, and you don't divide all of these up like, like, okay, God's being wrathful now, and now he's being loving. It, it, it's all of who God is. These are all of his attributes. So when God ex- exercises his attribute of wrath, he's loving. And when he exercises his faithfulness, he's... He's being merciful and just. It, it's who God is. It's kind of like the passage that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It, it's not that, well, okay, I'm going to love Him with my strength now, but I'm not going to think. Okay, I'm going to love Him with my mind now. It's all of who you are. But when the Bible says that God has the attribute of wrath, it, it surely is something not to be trifled with. It's something to flee. Flee the wrath that is to come. Where do you flee? You flee to Christ. It's, he's the only hope. And, and he, he stands there with open arms, willing to receive anyone who will come to Him. The wrath of God is not, is not the Lord getting mad and blowing up at sinners. You may think that because that's what your mom used to do or your dad used to do. or you know, That's not God's wrath. It, it's, it's His constant and controlled, invariable reaction to sin. The wrath of God is His eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It's the holiness of God stirred to activity against sin, one theologian said. And currently, the long-suffering of God is is restraining that wrath. It's still there. It's in the background, but but it's holding it back. A wonderful passage in 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that. It's the long-suffering of God that keeps Him from returning and It's because he he doesn't desire any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You know, because of this attribute of of his wrath, if he would come, it would require his action against sin, and one day it will. I mean, the Bible says the fierceness of of the wrath of Almighty God will be poured out undiluted at at some some point. Some point his long suffering will will come to an end and and then he will come and then he he can only but deal with the sin that, that, that is there. And this verse says these sins attract the wrath of God. So Paul says that these sins would be like standing out in a golf course in a lightning storm holding up your nine iron in the air. It's just not smart to do, right? You were by nature children of wrath. But now you've been made children of righteousness. So he says put away these things that stir God to displeasure. Now look at verse 7. It goes right along with this. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. It's, it's like a play on words here. In them you, you also once walked. Well, you, you lived in them when you were living in them. And the past tense of the verbs and the once and formally gives the thrust here. This is not who you are anymore. Can you fall to it? Yeah. Can you be entrapped by them? Yeah. But this is not who you are. These things that bring God's wrath that you used to do, that I used to do, but no more. Why used to? What changed? Well, I met the Master, and you did too. And then nothing's been the same. Paul says you used to live your life in these sins. They characterized your living, but such were some of you, but you've been washed. The song I used to sing, you probably sang it too says, I'm too near home with my Lord, too near to sweet heaven's reward. I'm not returning to sin. I have made my vow. There is nothing to go back to. Praise the Lord, sweet heavens in view. That's what Paul's doing here. There's nothing to go back to. What is there to go back to? What is there to go back to in, in, your, in your former life before Christ? The things that you used to do. If you've been born again, they may tempt you, but they hold no luster any longer. They're, they're, they're empty. And this verse says that you're to slay what you were. They're the stench, the smoke smell of your former life without, without Christ. To my shame, I, I, I read that about smoke smell and 
can remember getting up the next day or on Monday after a weekend and pulling out the jacket that I used to, used to wear that I wore over the weekend and I could still smell the, the lingering stench of the beer joints that I was in. Paul says it's not who you are. He says don't, don't be what you're not. When you do them, you're betraying what you become. The saddest individual you'll ever meet is not an unbeliever. The saddest individual you'll ever meet is a believer who is living the way they used to live before they were redeemed. They find no lasting pleasure in their sin. The happiest person that you'll ever meet is a believer who is living in joyful obedience and is void of offense between God and man. It's a clear conscience. Do you know that's possible? It's possible to have a clear conscience, void of offense between God and man. And you say, how is that possible? It's only possible because of the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ washes you so clean that before God, you know you're right. And before man, you've done all that you're able to do. And that is a beautiful way to live. So Paul says, kill these sins. So they won't be killing you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your word. How clear it is. I thank you that you began where we will end with with heaven. To set our affections, set our minds on the things above. It can be heavy. It can be even discouraging when we... We think of the fight. We're in the, the trench like in World War I. It's just muddy and bloody. And yet, you, the boys that were there, no doubt, took their minds to what, what home was like. On a summer day, sitting under a tree with listening to the birds. We set our minds on an even better place than that, on heaven. That's where we long to be, where our Savior is at. And we are now your temple. We, you, your presence live within us. We're not just to gut it out in the trench. You actually live with us. You're walking with us through this. And so you give us the, the commands. So I pray for any Christian that might be discouraged this morning. I pray for any, first of all, that might be not taking a passage like this seriously. Maybe you're calling them to action this morning. Give them strength to do that. I pray for, for those who might be struggling They want to overcome, but they can't. Oh, give them perseverance, Lord. Help them to remain fixed even for the next two messages. I pray for anyone who might be outside of Christ, fumbling and stumbling through life, not being able to figure out why they have no joy, they have no purpose or trajectory. I pray they would turn to Christ, who will receive them. In Jesus' name, amen.